cops with unarmed safety officers. Yeah. And so there was some altercation and these two guys are fighting in the middle of the street and these safety officers are just standing there like, uh, somebody needs to come and do something because we can't. So. Right. Cop can handle all of that, but they, uh, somebody that's unarmed and untrained can't handle a lot of the What are you going to do? You're going to rush in there and risk getting beaten up because. Right. What, for a paycheck? Rash decisions seem to be the norm in our culture today. Well, it's a tough time to be a cop. And it's a tough time to be a cop. Yeah, one of the things I was looking up, because I, I still stay connected to the industry, obviously, because not only am I, I teaching part-time out at the police academy, but I just got back from the California Police Chiefs Association annual training conference. And so attended some classes there as well. But I subscribe to a lot of different police resources, periodicals, magazines, organizations to try to stay on top of everything still. And uh, I was just reading from one from the Police Executive Research Forum how compared to pre-2019 and COVID and the George Floyd protest to today, um, resignations are still down about 50%. Uh, the levels in staffing overall is down 5% from that time. So, you know, we're still trending in the wrong direction as an industry, which is going to have huge repercussions for society. It has repercussions right now. Yeah. yeah. Big time. Yeah. Do you think that that is going to get better or you think this is just a path that we're going to see through to the end? It, right now, it's feeling like the foreseeable future, but things tend to go in cycles. You know, we've seen periods of up and down before. This just seems to be the worst that I saw in my quarter century of policing. Hands down. That I can remember hands down. I mean, it used to be you could you would have dozens or maybe even hundreds of applicants for police officer positions, especially in the larger agencies. And just looking here locally, you might have a handful of applicants. And we were seeing background failure rates because, um, you know, every peace officer has to go through an extensive background investigation, 75 to 90 percent failure rates. Jesus, that high. Right. And, you know, obviously we don't want to compromise standards because we owe it to the community to give our very best to have officers that are going to serve with integrity and uh, as well as professionalism and, and excellence that can actually do the job past the psychological components of the background. But you're really looking at integrity and ethics because the last thing you want is to be have another George Floyd situation that's you own, that's in your department, in your city, in your neighborhood. And so you're trying to do hire people that are going to be successful and reflect the values of society. But does the people that are applying, as few as they are, far too many of them have some significant issues in their lives, things you just can't overlook with in a good conscience. And so they're failing the process or they're lying during the process. Uh, we had a guy uh, that uh, we were hiring and he was going down for his uh, background investigators uh, interview one-on-one. -on -one. He got a speeding ticket heading from Humboldt down south, going, I don't know, what 20 miles an hour over the speed limit or whatever. Got a ticket from the highway patrol and then lied about it to the investigator, lied about it to uh, his training officer out at the academy. Well, he's done. He's dead to law enforcement. You will never get hired, at least not here, uh, you know, when you lie in the process. And it's crazy, stupid. All he had to do was just admit, I made a mistake, own it, show some responsibility, we can get past that if that's all that's going on and you don't show a pattern of behavior. And for a speeding ticket. For a speeding ticket, he jeopardizes his career. And so unless he somehow goes to another state 
or somewhere where this doesn't come up because they don't do a thorough background investigation, that should preclude him from ever becoming a peace officer. And for something so minor. That's right. Is that, is that the standard is when somebody does get wrapped up for that, it's for something insignificant that they're afraid of, as opposed to, you know, I'll beat my wife and now I want to be a cop. And so I'm trying to hide this. You know, all of the above. It's crazy the things that people uh, will mislead about or lie about. And so speeding tickets, just one example, um, you know, they say, and I learned this from day one, if you lie, you die in the profession. And, and today, if you are caught in your official duties being dishonest uh, or certain other very high kind of crimes, you land on what's known as a Brady list or should be, uh, should land on a Brady list. And that can completely preclude you from ever uh, having credibility testifying in court again. And so again, you're pretty much dead to the profession of policing. So for example, we had an officer, uh, you know, that I liked, but uh, he made a big mistake, went to a call, uh, lied about taking photos of someone's deceased dog. So, you know, a resident came outside, this is just a few years ago, found their pet, dead in their backyard with an obvious gunshot wound. Uh, the officer did a very lackluster investigation. And uh, when he was asked by the sergeant, did he take photos, said yes. Well, he didn't take photos. And one lie led to another. And he had another separate incident. Long story short was, uh, you know, he received a very significant discipline right up to the edge of being terminated, left for another agency. And this made the news, by the way. This was in... Mendocino County papers and things. And uh, it later came out that he had this sustained dishonesty um, finding in an internal investigation in Eureka. Well, the DA lost it down there. Like, how how is this not disclosed? Upset and angry at the chief for not, you know, affirmatively or proactively disclosing to the district attorney's office down there that one of his recent hires was a Brady officer, essentially. So they had to go back through all this new officer's cases you know, throw out a bunch, dismiss a bunch because he was not considered credible. And uh, th- that officer ended up losing that job as well as a big black eye on the chief of police down there um, from the DA's perspective for, again, um, not disclosing this and taking it seriously in the DA's opinion. And so honesty and integrity is just at the core of what we do. I actually teach um, leadership ethics and professionalism at the academy. It's the first learning domain. And uh, it's a post-requirement police officer standards and training commission in California. We only get eight hours to teach that class. Now, it's intertwined through all the other learning modules, uh, you know, because, again, integrity and ethics are at the core. But, you know, that, that's this number one, the first learning domain, because it's the most foundational. Well, and you got to think, if you can't trust the officers on the force, how do you achieve anything? I mean, it all just crumbles. You've got... If there's that lack, if you're working a desk job and your boss comes and says, hey, did you finish that report? And you didn't. And you say, yeah, you know, I'll send it right over it. And then you bang it out. There's no harm, no foul. But if you're out on a job or responding to a call and something goes sideways and you lie about it, there's a different way. I mean, you can't just bounce back and say, oh, I'll do this later. You failed. And people innately want to try to cover that up and want to try to fix that and move forward. You can't do that in this profession. That's right. And if you're going to compromise your integrity and lie about the little things when maybe the consequences are are low for the mistake that you made, 
what are you going to do when something heavy's on the line? Like you come across tens of thousands of dollars of, of cash that could just disappear. On and nobody a would know. And no one would know. Uh, those guys, those, 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 I don't even want to use the word officers, those criminals that were in law enforcement that were stopping vehicles on 101 uh, down in Mendocino County and uh, seizing their, their marijuana and then not booking it properly into evidence, essentially profiting from it. I had you not know. heard about that. Yeah, the redheaded black belt. So one of our local uh, news outlets broke that story, and it made uh, even national news now. There's been indictments and arrests, and uh, one case is still open. People have lost jobs. At least one officer is going to, to prison. Uh, it was quite a big thing and uh, a huge black eye, again, for local law enforcement because they were essentially acting like criminals. They were stealing. Were criminals. Yeah, they were criminals. And um, it, and one of one of them again has uh, been found guilty since then, as I recall from from his journey through the judicial process, as well as you know the internal administrative investigations. Because anytime you conduct misconduct, whether it's criminal in nature or policy violation or whatever, an officer is going to face multiple investigations, as they should. There's going to be the internal administrative investigation or internal affairs investigation, as they're commonly called which is uh, you know, where the department looks at uh, whether or not any policies were violated or laws are violated, and then um, there's potential discipline that's proposed and comes out of that. If you commit a crime, then you have the criminal investigation, which is separate, you know, that, and the DA is going to look at that case. And so there are, are potential penalties, including not only the loss of job that could happen under either one, but loss of freedom, potentially. And then there's a civil aspect. You and the department could get sued for your actions. So you can get it three different ways for misconduct and wrongdoing. And that's why it's so important for leaders today and for agencies to pay a mind very carefully to who they hire, not compromise their, their values, even in this national workforce crisis that is being experienced in policing. Uh, and it has been for the last several years as well as holding people accountable uh, within your agency for their misconduct. And uh, you know, not just through punishment, but corrective action. Is there more training that's needed? Is there education that's required for those cases that don't require a loss of job? How do you fix that? How do you change the culture? Uh, you know, It's very difficult to change a culture in an organization. It takes time. But who you hire and who you promote are key components of that, as well as the leadership that's exercised, exercised from the chief of police all the way down. So I teach in the first learning domain on ethics and leadership uh, that every officer is a leader. That's foundational. You have a responsibility to lead in your community. Your community looks to you as a leader and a responsibility to lead within the department amongst your peers. And so if you see something that's wrong, you need to intervene. You have a duty and an obligation to intervene. Now, when we think of intervening, we're thinking of George Floyd and over nine minutes with Officer Chauvin, you know, kneeling on his, his you know, neck as he's dying from a medical emergency while essentially the others did nothing. And now it's cost four officers their careers and their freedom and a lot more. So, yeah, they had a duty to intervene to stop Chauvin and see that, that um George Floyd received the medical care that he needed promptly and immediately. But intervention goes all the way down to you see an officer, you know, acting in a way that has bias or some other kind of integrity type of issue, calling that out, not just turning uh, a blind eye. Well, one of the ironic things about our current view of law enforcement or society's current view is 
you're almost creating this atmosphere where potential hires are going to be of a lower quality because the people that would want to be police officers for the right reasons are thinking, why, why would I want to be a cop and risk all of these things and get shit on by the public right now and have everybody hate me for what purpose? I'll just go do this other job. Whereas someone who may not have a whole lot of options is like, well, I guess I could just be a cop because why not? And, and then the standard gets lowered. A lot of wannabe cops out there that, for whatever reason, they think that that looks fun, and and uh, but they don't really understand what the job entails and the stress behind and the it. Stress behind it, and it can be. I mean, don't get me wrong. End of the day, no regrets. Amazing career. It's provided for my family. You know, I'm retired uh, right now, though I'm doing a few things on the side, and that's providing for my family. But it also came at a high cost. You know, health. Um, you know, the stress, um, it can be very difficult on relationships, a lot of missed, you know, special occasions with your families, birthdays and holidays. And, you know, I remember one time as chief, we had just come through, uh, the worst of the George Floyd protests, like a couple months back to back, nonstop every weekend. Uh, you know, you can imagine the environment at the time. I keep hitting this microphone here. Hope it's not expensive. No, you're <laughs> the, good. And, um, uh, and COVID was also taking place. And so you had, and then we were facing huge budget cuts of between 10 to 12% in the department and some lost positions and it's a lot of bad stuff. But finally there was a, a moment in time where I was able to take a long overdue um, break and uh, took my family on a vacation just like three hours from here. It's just gonna be for better part of a week. And we weren't out there two days and we had an officer involved shooting and I needed his chief to come back. And so we had all went together in one vehicle. So I had to bring my whole family back. And, you know, that just comes with the territory and, you know, no complaints. You know, I hated uh, to put my family through that. It comes with the job. But again, that job has has costs. So when you're a chief of police, for instance, you are never unplugged ever 24 7 365 i don't care if you manage a vacation overseas or you manage to get off to hawaii maybe or you're just down the street like we were a few hours you're always on duty so you have your cell phone you know you're you got to make yourself available your staff needs to know where you're at city manager needs to know where you're at and how to get a hold of you at all times because if something huge happens you know the chief's got to be there and so you have other people you trust that can hold down the fort very well while you're gone. But there are certain events where you can't just stay away. It's your job to come back and lead. That aspect of always being on call and the idea that a cop is always a cop, right? Do you think that, I mean, how do you, how do you combat the stress that comes from that? Because it seems like when people want to point at you know, cops being involved in certain shootings or handling certain situations poorly. One of the things that people fail to recognize most of the time is that these cops are under a constant state of pressure. I mean, you don't know if when you walk up to a car, if somebody's going to start shooting at you. And even saying that, I can't fully appreciate that because I've never been in that situation. I would have to imagine that that weighs on you at a certain point in time, that that constant buildup of this heightened state that you just naturally exist at now would almost force you to crack at some point, wouldn't it? It can if you don't take steps to have, uh, you know, we use the word officer safety all the time, right? It's preached from day one in the police academy and the field training program for new officers because it's a sea change for somebody that's maybe not been in the military in combat or other situations to come into this profession and realize now that you have a badge, you have a target on your back. 
and uh, there are very, very bad people out there that are predators, and they will victimize you as well as other innocent civilians if you aren't vigilant, you aren't prepared, you aren't well-trained, and you don't exude that don't mess with me because I'm ready type of attitude. And so you've got to kind of drill that in, but that does create that state of hypervigilance where you never really turn it off. You know, there's a book called Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement, easy read, one of the most powerful, profound books on this topic, written, um, written by Dr. Gil Martin. And he talks about the magic chair. So many cops come, come home, they plop in the chair and tune on the TV and completely tune out everything else in their life. They, they, they're burnt out. They don't want to have to make any more decisions in the family that gets offloaded to the spouse, the husband or wife. And uh, they can become distance, and plus you're in that constant state of hypervigilance, so you have those stress hormones uh, that are constantly coursing through your body and you know, can lead to weight gain, loss of sleep, a uh, host of medical problems, heart conditions, you know, and um, a lot of different uh, significant problems that are well-documented. And so when we talk about officer safety, we have to move beyond just that you're strapping on a ballistic bullet-resistant vest. And you have the other tools of your trade, like your handgun and your taser, and you know, you're being tactically sound out there when you're interacting with people. And look at officer safety as a holistic whole body and being thing. So your emotional safety, your spiritual, your physical well-being in terms of your health and your fitness levels, and attend to each of those things. So having friends outside of work hobbies outside of law enforcement because we tend to all our friends are in law enforcement we like to go shoot or do this and that all it's kind of related to our career so one of the ways that you can get there to take care of yourself again is recognizing you're more than just a cop because being a cop is like your whole identity and having friends hobbies uh, outside of that and again um, being attentive to those other you know your diet your exercise uh, if you're a spiritual we're all spiritual beings but if you're a person of faith you know, whether it's attending church or whatever it is that you do, uh, as well as, you know, your emotional health, seeing somebody, if you need to talk to a counselor or a therapist, especially one that specializes in first responder issues, there should be no stigma with that anymore. And that's something that law enforcement leadership's finally realized over the last few years. There's been a, a change or a shift where people were afraid to admit they needed help because they were worried about repercussions. Am I going to lose my job? Are they going to take my gun away and put me on desk duty because I'm suffering from post-traumatic stress? You know, and it's not just a disorder, it's an injury. Post-traumatic stress injury is really what it should be called. Um, and so it, it's okay to ask for help. You know, we, we've sent people to the West Coast Trauma Retreat that have been through significant criminal uh, critical incidences. We had the shooting I told you about that brought me home from vacation. That was a Marine Corps veteran that was a uh, suicide by cop. Very, very sad. Well, two of the officers on scene that were involved were Marine Corps veterans. And so it hit them extra hard, and they had done everything they could to save this man's life, to not have to, to shoot him. And the you know, mental health uh, crisis counselors on scene, resources, you know, trying to de-escalate the situation, pulling back from the house and creating space and distance for more time, trying to dialogue with them, you know, emergency medical teams staged in case, less lethal options available. And the man finally came out with a loaded handgun and pointed it directly at them. There's nothing they could do. Four officers fired and unfortunately 
Well, fortunately, none of the officers were injured or, or any bystanders, but unfortunately, the Marine Corps veteran was killed, and that's the way he chose to go out. It's tragic. So how do they deal with that? Well, we brought in um, a first responder therapists, a team uh, from out of the area that, that specialize in first responder trauma. In fact, the, 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 the lady that owns the company, she has a husband and a son that are a firefighter and a police officer, respectively. So she understands these issues firsthand. She knows what they're going through. And so everyone got a confidential session with her team over the course of two days at, at the Eureka Police Department, just as a starting place. Everybody had made it department-wide, even people that were not involved that day. But you can imagine the officers that were involved, the investigators that came and had to process the scene, uh, you know, and the, the evidence, the dispatchers, they handled the calls, all traumatized, you know, by what happened. It's not like Hollywood where everybody's high-fiving. I mean, not that that doesn't happen, and that's, for the most part, wrong, uh, you know, but um, it, it just has impacts beyond the event, and it's not pleasant for those involved. You know, it's... it's um, a traumatic event that can continue to have adverse impacts for years and years to come for everyone that's involved. Have you noticed that most officers are more willing now to come forward in this new climate? Or is there still a hesitation and a fear that if I say I need help, I might be saying I can't do my job? Well, unfortunately, there is still some of that stigma when I'm now talking as a whole, the profession as a whole. And there's some agencies that are not up to speed with this change. And there are some individuals that still have those old, you know, rub some dirt on it, shut your mouth and, and get move back on. to work. But uh, there is a significant change and it's often starting now from at every level of the department, from the chief, uh, you know, on down and people are more willing to speak up and, and officers are more willing to share their experiences and admit that, Hey, I needed help. And I got help. I am aware of an officer at my former agency that was in a significant on-duty traffic accident, suffered a traumatic brain uh, injury. And um, not too many people knew, but he, as he continued to, to have to deal with this injury, um, there he reached a point where he became suicidal. And I didn't know. I heard about this after the fact, and this was before I was chief. Um, but he was ultimately able to get the help that he needed, and he's told his story a number of different times. Well, that takes courage right there. And he still uh, is promoted uh, as a supervisor. He's still in his job. Uh, you know, didn't cost him his, his, uh, his job. But I also know other officers that legitimately uh, the stress was so much that they had to medically retire from the profession because of what they saw. But you know what? It's sad that they're going through that. But if that's what they need to do, then that's okay. That's what they need to do. Uh, you know, because again, it's an injury. Really, is what it comes down to. It's a job-related injury. For an officer that's involved in a shooting on duty, are there any? I mean, what are the requirements for them to get back to work? I would assume there's a hold period, an investigation into the shooting. Is there any therapy that's required, or do they have to do a psyche eval or anything like that to get back in? This can be agency-dependent. Um, it used to be you got a standard like three to five days off and then barring some significant issue that are surrounding the shooting, you were, were back to work as the investigations you know, continued. Like I told you before, in this case, there's at least two major investigations that will happen in every officer-involved shooting, um, including fatal ones, because a fatal officer-involved shooting is a homicide. 
right? It's It may be justifiable homicide by a peace officer, but it's still a homicide because it's the killing of another human being. So you're going to have an independent criminal investigation. Uh, in, in Humboldt County's case, it's led by the critical incident response team, which is a kind of, we have a protocol and an MOU where multiple agencies are involved and policies surrounding that. The DA is involved, and then you have the the primary lead agency, the, the other agencies. And so it's not just the, the Fox investigating its own raid of the hen house, right? Uh, there's checks and balances designed. So you have the criminal investigation, but then you have the internal investigation that, again, looks at policies, training, and things like that. And uh, while they may parallel each other, there are certain lines they can't necessarily cross. And it just has to do with uh, you can be compelled to give a statement under the administrative. You can invoke your right you're to self against self-incrimination in the criminal one. And then investigators have to be careful about cross-sharing information in some cases. Like a compelled statement under the criminal is not supposed to be, well, not under the administrative is not supposed to be shared with the criminal. Uh, anyways, I'm getting into the weeds here. But uh, yeah, so um, you could be off work and typically are for at least a few days and sometimes months um, because they may choose to let the investigations conclude before the officer's back to full duty. So uh, you may be on light duty, your desk duty, administrative duty in the department, not out on the field, uh, you know, enforcing the law during that period. Or sometimes you may be off at home and that usually you're in desk duty. Um, you may have a psychological evaluation or a fit for duty test, depending on that. And um, counseling may be offered by the agency and it should be, I think now should just be protocol. If you get in a critical incident like this, you should, um, you know, you should be able to see a therapist. It should just be part of it. Everyone knows you're going to go see a therapist on this or a counselor. And then that's a private conversation that's not reported back to the city or county. It would make sense, right? right. I mean, you're going through something, even if it's a justified and something that had to be done, you would imagine that there's some toll that that would take on you being involved in that. Right. And we put up shells or protective layers against the trauma that we experience. And uh, that barrier, you know, we shut people out, our spouses, um, sometimes even our closest friends. And that can be very toxic because officers swim in a toxic soup every day. I mean, that's the job that comes with it. You have your wonderful moments where you're, you're involved in community events, whether it's shop with a cop or one-on-one -on -one interactions, or you know maybe you're playing some pickup basketball with a kid or things like that, or moments like the detective and deputy from the sheriff's office that just saved a young infant's life and gave them CPR. Uh, literally, like a, probably a highlight of the career that they had a chance to do to do that, and they made a difference. They literally saved a life, and that makes the job all worth it. But between those those high points, those moments, you see and experience firsthand so much trauma and grief and death and misery and the worst of humanity. Again, that's sometimes balanced by seeing the best of humanity, and that's awesome when that happens. But people don't call us when they're having a good day, when everything's going well. They call us on the worst day of their life, or at least what feels like the worst day of their life. That's whatever they're calling you about is the number one issue going on in their life at that moment. And often it's pretty miserable. And so the cops are there and we have to deal with it. And it's tough because you show up and, and you can't fix 10 years of horrible parenting, you know, in, in a few minutes while you're dealing with this call, but that expectation is kind of there and that's a lot to take on. And so some cops become robotic at times. We talked about hypervigilance and uh, that kind of a 
maybe distance that officers project sometimes. And uh, that's because you get trained that you've got to constantly be aware because you don't know who's going to try to kill you. Well, that sometimes translates to officers even refusing to shake someone's hand, which is a very human you know, gesture. And yes, there are times where it's not wise and unsafe to shake a hand. You know, the, the logic goes, you extend your dominant hand to shake someone's hand. That's my gun hand. The person traps your hand, pulls their own weapon, you know, then it's game over, right? Well, not everyone in the world is trying to kill you. And so you have to have that balance where you're prepared and you're vigilant, but you're still approachable because you know, we'll use our firearms very few times in our career outside of training. Maybe never. Most cops never. But your communication skills, you use every single day. And communication is not just verbal. It's also your nonverbal cues. How you, it's facial expressions, your uh, gestures, the way, your body language. And if it's constantly a them versus us, uh, a distance type of thing where there's no human connection, no humanizing the badge, that's very off-putting for people. And so um, that effective communication and building those important relationships, because policing is really relational policing. Policing is about relationships at its core between, uh, you know, the police department and their employees and officers and the members of the community. We're from the community. This is our community. We live there. Um, we may be seeing somebody that we're having an interaction with at work at your son's baseball game the next day, especially in a smaller community. But um, to make any headway on the significant problems that communities have, homelessness, drugs, crime, it takes a partnership between the police department and, and the citizens that we serve. We can't do it alone. We rely on each other. We need each other. Yes, they empower us. They give us a gun badge authority, but they also have certain expectations of us, right? We're going to police in a constitutionally just and humane way with integrity. We're going to be fair and unbiased and objective. We're going to be trustworthy. That's the kind of principle policing type of concepts there, procedural justice tenets. And um, again, going back to those relationships, you've got to build those partnerships, understanding and trust with members of your community. Now, maybe not the proly child molester down the street that's the literal continual predator, though there still has to be an element of you maintain your professionalism, but the people you're going to work with to solve quality of life and crime problems, you've got to have that relationship. And that comes back to communication and building positive relationships. Do you feel like an officer's ability to do their job is kind of handicapped right now in this current climate? Well, there there is without doubt and has been for a number of years now a very negative national narrative, particularly in the media, towards law enforcement. Every sensational story that you put out there that fits this script, this narrative, they do. And meanwhile, infinitely more positive interactions or events are happening where the cops do it right, where they uh, the use of force is justified. Because use of force is always ugly. There's no way to sugarcoat it. That's why I tell the students in the, the use of force class and de-escalation class I teach in the academy is use, the use of force is always ugly. Don't make it uglier, right? So do the right thing. Follow your training. Make sure your force is objectively reasonable. And on that side note, I'm kind of going off on a tangent here a little bit. Look, there are problems in policing that are greater than just a bad apple here or there. We have to just own that. There are some cultural issues there's some legacy historical issues. There's just some bad people or some agencies or units within agencies where there's corruption. It happens. 
but I still stand by the vast majority of cops are honorable people in the profession for the right reasons. They are worthy of our trust and our support. And so that's why we need to lift up the good cops. Uh, well, we all, police and citizens together, condemn the bad cops and weed them out and be careful who we hire and who we promote, hold people accountable, be trans transparent as we're allowed to be. Um, because when you police, you've got to police not just with excellence, but there has to be or should be a level of compassion in what you do. Because again, you know, that's humanizing the batch. You know, we're, we're all in this together. We rely on each other. We need each other. Uh, what was your, you were going back to, is it hard to, um, to be a police officer today in the current climate, right? It, you know, it is. Everyone has a camera which is both good and bad. So transparency is increased, but cameras only show part of the story. They may not film the whole incident. They may uh, only film one two-dimensional point of view. They, they can't capture a lot. But you know when you have a camera constantly in your face, and again, use of force is ugly even when you're doing it right, uh, that could be a lot. You know, And then people can pick and choose portions of a video or an event you know, and the narrative gives out there. And if you don't correct it right away, that narrative, even if false, uh, becomes the truth and the dominant narrative that's out there, which is a lesson to agencies to be more proactive in their social media. Uh, you know, you can't wait for the, the old 24-hour news cycle anymore. The news cycle is instantaneous. And so you got to get out in front of these kind of um, events with your crisis communication. We either we made a mistake and we need to own it, or either we did something right or something good and something positive in the community like the, the the deputies, the sheriff deputies up here and detective that saved that infant's life with CPR. So yeah, you have to know what you're getting into, uh, especially post-George Floyd. It's been really, really hard in policing. Uh, there's been some calls for reform. Some of it's sensible and okay. Uh, and you know, you're a person's feeling on things like the carotid restraint. Uh, you go both ways. A valuable tool taken away in California from all officers. Um, could it be misused? Yes, like any other tool that we have. Um, but there's these attempts to defund the police. Well, what does that mean? Some say, well, reimagine. Okay, well, I can kind of get with that in terms of if we can get more non-sworn officers, you know, like civilian personnel, especially trained people to handle, take, please take it off our plate. You were talking about a situation where these uh, unarmed, non-sworn police personnel had to deal with, you know, whether they see some kind of disturbance or fight or something was going on. It's like, well, what do we do? We're not equipped to do that. Well, that, they so dealing with the, the homeless and the mentally ill. Uh, if an officer doesn't have to respond to a call involving somebody that's in a mental health crisis uh, or is homeless, uh, maybe there's no violence reported going on and um, a non-officer can handle that and we're just there or can come if, if, if we're needed. Great. I mean, we didn't sign up. I'm telling you right now when we became police officers to become the homeless police. But so many cities, especially on the West and East Coast, that's like the number one pressing issue in their communities. And Humboldt County is at the tip of the spear on that, not only in some attempts to be innovative with programs, but our per capita homeless rates. I think I read at one point it was somewhere close to five times the per capita rate in California. Uh, so there's some exciting things happening. They have the, the kind of one-stop navigation center for the homeless that's being going to be built down there across from the St. Vincent de Paul um, free dining facility there around commercial and A, where there's going to be some housing available, temporary overnight shelter, bathroom, showers, a place for the dog, place for their uh, 
for the, the store their property securely, um, uh, day use area, and then social services, mental health workers, and medical staff even to kind of help uh, make some progress on that. And that's potentially exciting, exciting for the community if it's run well. But, um, you know, these are big problems. I call that, I, I've digressed again off on a new topic, but that's okay. I obviously have a lot to say about policing, right? I call it the tragic triad. That's mental uh, illness, addiction, and homelessness, and how they're all intertwined. And so many members of the homeless community are struggling with significant mental illness and substance abuse disorders, and how they all kind of, again, intertwined in a, a, a terrible way that exasperates their problem and makes it harder to get them services and the help that they need. And I'm not talking about certain individuals who are homeless that literally, and I've met them, it's a lifestyle choice. They're perfectly capable of getting a job and all of this or just choosing to, to do a certain thing, uh, act, live a certain way, and they'll tell you that. That there are so many others that are incapable or struggle with rational thought because of addiction or mental illness and um, you know need help, need intervention. And so we got to have the programs and services available so it's not just the police um, policing the gaps in a broken system, which has historically been the case. You know, we work 24-7. Officers who were always there. You know, used to be good luck getting a social worker on the street at 3 in the morning when, you know, there's a, a, a call for service involving a mentally homeless, uh, mentally Ill homeless person in crisis. It's going to be a police officer. So as we look at these kind of programs that, um, you know, kind of alternate responses, that's great. And I think communities need to, but you're going to always need cops as well. You know, if someone's acting out violently, you're going to need a police officer with tools and training as well. So defunding the cops is a big mistake. In fact, most agencies need more officers. Um, the call for service volume in Eureka, it's exponentially higher than about virtually any other agency I've looked at in terms of per capita population. And I had done the research a few different times compared to agencies like Santa Clara. I had a conversation with a commander in Anchorage Police Department in Alaska that just couldn't believe our staffing levels versus the call for service volume, for instance. Well, budgets are limited. Get that too, but don't further cut funding, you know, and that doesn't help with the workload and the burnout. As cops are burning out, that's why resignations we were talking about earlier, since 2019, so pre-COVID, pre-George Floyd, resignations uh, nationwide and out of about 140 or so agencies surveyed by the Police Executive Research Forum, uh, resignations at those agencies um, were up about 50% in that time. Officers resigning prematurely um, from their their agencies. You still have retirements are up, though that's starting to level out. Hiring was down, though in some agencies that's stabilizing. But overall, again, the actual staffing levels are about 5% lower than they were back pre-2019. Um, Arcade PD, just this last week, they announced a $50,000 hiring bonus. That is insanely high. Uh, Reading had been 40000 last year or so, so that's probably part of that because we lose a lot of people to Reading. But um, we're all competing, especially in, the, in this region up here where it's so limited. It's like, you know, you incite, uh, entice somebody from the sheriff's office to come to the police department. Now the sheriff's office is in need of someone or vice versa. And so uh, Eureka, City of Eureka, has a $50,000 signing bonus. When I was chief, I retired in December of uh, 2021, 
uh, we had to win as high as $20,000, which is then about the highest in the entire state for a lateral signing bonus. Lateral police officer is someone that's graduated from the academy, is served, is not an entry-level officer. They have some experience because they're valuable. Less training is needed, less cost. Um, a shorter field training programs, you don't uh, have to send them through the police academy. And so they're a valuable um, resource from a recruiting and retention standpoint. $20,000 has now become $50,000. And is it going to be enough? Uh, probably not right now. But you got to do something because when you're running, you know, 20% down on your sworn officer positions and Eureka was about there at one point, everyone's having to work mandatory overtime. Specialty assignments are being suspended or ended. Uh, you know, like the problem on a policing team, you have detectives coming back to work patrol because there's just not enough officers on patrol. And so you're losing your proactive units that can go out there and problem solve long term um, and lower calls for service at problem areas and individuals because they have the, the time and space to go address those kind of situations. Um, and they're going back to patrol. And so we're paying, playing ping pong policing. We're bouncing around town reactively from call to call to call, putting out fires after they've already started instead of getting upstream of the problem and preventing the fires in the first place. I'll give you an example. So we started a team called the Community Safety Engagement Team, which kind of became um, uh, a team that addresses not only crime and quality of life issues, primarily in the areas where our homeless populations tend to, to congregate, like along the waterfront and in the parks and the downtown. Uh, they've expanded their mission as they've become very valuable community partners in, in addressing the homeless crisis in our community. Again, by looking at ways to get upstream and working with mental health uh, interventions and work, uh, you know, social workers and going out where the homeless are to engage them in services versus where we'd like them to be because they're not going to come to you often. So they took an individual, I'll just call him Bob, that was responsible for somewhere around 180 calls for service in the previous year. So this is a gentleman that's homeless and has significant mental illness. And they were able to get him stabilized and housed and in an apartment and in treatment. And the calls for service went down to something like, I think there was three the next year. So peace officers, police officers and others, and, and uh, don't forget the firefighters and EMTs responding 180 something times. Think of the cost and the time down to virtually zero because you had a proactive team that could intervene proactively like that little Talk about value for the community, right? Let alone the changed life for this individual, you know, a much better place than he was on the street, right? Because these are human beings we're talking about. Well, and the stress taken off of the officers, which I think is a big, a big factor in all of this. If you want officers to not make mistakes and to be able to handle difficult situations, burning them out does not seem like the best course of option. You no, because you what would happens, want to avoid that. They get short temper, it could lack of sleep, stress, missed family events. And then they make a mistake. Right. And then they, it yes. just happens. Right. They make a mistake. Absolutely. Um, you know, they, they miss an important step in an investigation or um, maybe they lose their temper or their patience or they come across kind of uncaring and unfeeling um, just because they just don't have anything emotionally left to give. And as you're burning them out, what are they going to think about? I know a number of officers, uh, not only at my former agency, Eureka, but a couple other local agencies, um, and with the added stress of COVID and George Floyd protests and just the, the 
animosity towards police that was out there so much across this country, uh, they quit. They resigned and left policing because they just they couldn't do it anymore. Well, that's tragic because these were good people that made their communities better, the departments better, future leaders uh, in law enforcement we can't afford to lose and further exasperating the, the, the workforce crisis, the staffing crisis. And so one of them I heard recently just came back after about a year off, which is great because I think a lot of this, this officer, so I'm glad to see him back, but others have just permanently left the profession and moved on. And that's tragic as well. Um, you know, we're, you know, look at what the nation's doing with this negativity towards policing. We're making the very problems they're concerned about worse. And, you know, when you have staffing crises across the country, when you have cops that are afraid to engage and are doing the bare minimum, not conducting traffic stops as much as often as they, they had in the past, and I'll talk about that in a minute, um, you know, basically kind of hiding out in their cars, out of sight, out of mind, responding just to calls because they have to because they're afraid to be proactive because they're worried that they're going to get vilified by their agency or by the public. Uh, they're going to get prosecuted for a necessary, you know, uh, and, and a reasonable use of force because, you know, there's a kind of trend again right now. That's a problem. And, you know, uh, I think it's, is it San Diego? Um, so they're stopping people about the number of traffic stops they're conducting, I just read, is about 50% lower than it was uh, pre-COVID and George Floyd. And there's uh, cities like Berkeley and others that have actually instituted like policy changes prohibiting traffic stops for certain minor infractions. And the concern being is that the minorities are being stopped disproportionately to, uh, you know, white people, for instance. And so it's like a, a biased form of policing or something. What people fail to realize is traffic stops are a very important investigative tool. So a lot of times, you know, we may not be stopping somebody just because it's a safety issue because they're speeding. Maybe we're stopping them for that broken taillight or a registration violation or some other minor infraction because it's also an opportunity to see, hey, what's going on? Not because of the particular race. A lot of times you can't even tell the gender or the race of the person in the car, especially at night. But you stop them, make them aware of the violation, and maybe one thing leads to another when you realize that you have a, a parolee you know, uh, on parole, recently discharged into the community for rape that's out there committing crimes. He's got burglary tools or evidence of a ro armed robbery in the car with him. And by taking that person in custody, you prevented who knows how many other crimes because uh, when they're, they're not on the street, they can't victimize innocent citizens out here. Uh, when they're behind bars, you know, they're kind of prevented from doing that, but they're predators, apex predators. And when they're out on the street, what they do, their business is taking from others and harming others. Well, police officers, again, using these investigative stops, um, you know, probable cause for legitimate law violations is an important tool to be present in the community and potentially prevent and to intervene and, and prevent crime. Do you think a lot of that in terms of its relation to race has been blown out of proportion or do you think there's some validity to that? I, I think it's hard not to argue that in some communities, in some agencies, uh, there's some fire where the, you know, the smoke appears with you know a disproportionate number of stops of, of people of certain you know races. Um, but I think as a whole, no, 
Um, I think the cops are out there doing their job, and there may be other reasons why the numbers are skewed the way they are, or maybe the way that they're collecting the data is inaccurate, or maybe they're policing a community where, you know, in these certain high crime neighborhoods, there's just going to be more people of color than there are, you know, other races. And that's just natural. You stop five cars if three of those or four of those drivers are always going to be a person of color versus, you know, a Caucasian, that's just going to be the numbers when you're stopping cars. Um, but it is something to monitor. Um, California has uh, the RIPA, the Racial Identification Profiling Act data that all agencies are required to collect correct now. Very flawed the way it's set up and kind of onerous uh, for the agencies in terms of um, because officers, when they stop a car, they have to collect a whole bunch of data and report it. I'm not convinced that they've come up with the best system to accurately do that. It What it's supposed to do is give a snapshot of this exact topic. And, you know, are we being equitable uh, in uh, officers? Are they being equitable in um, the type of, of individuals that they stop? So that a lot remains to be seen on that. The defund the police sentiment is just so insane. I get wanting to allocate some resources to maybe mental health clinicians to go out with officers and respond to certain types of calls and trying to ease their load a little bit. But the idea that we should just abolish police, which I've heard on this podcast and had conversations about, is insane. People just think that, oh, crime is just going to go away. People will figure it out. They'll be kind to each other. There's not going to be any murders. There's not going to be any break-ins. People will just get along. We could have some unarmed division of citizens patrolling. They don't they don't understand how quickly people can devolve into chaos if there's not like actual laws enforced and someone there to do it. So I'm not a chief of police anymore, so I'm just going to say it. Many of those people well-intended or not are idiots when it comes to this topic. They absolutely do not know what they're talking about. They they're not looking at the big picture and you're right. I mean, just think about what you've seen in cities when the power goes out for a few hours or a day, you know, or when we couldn't get toilet paper at Costco because of COVID, how things start getting edgy out there. Now imagine that you're three, you're in a major city, you're three, four, five days in with no trash service, no electricity, no water. How do you think that's going to go? And when you need your officers, you need them and you need them right now, not the one to two years it takes to, re if you're lucky to recruit and train and field someone out there. And so it's insane. These programs, I believe in these programs for the most part. I think they can be valuable tools. They're acknowledging that the police shouldn't be responsible for every issue in society, that there are, are problems often like homelessness and mental illness that are better handled by other professionals than police officers unless a crime is committed or an act of violence is going on. Freeing up our officers to focus on, you know, other crime prevention and enforcement efforts. But those programs should supplement the law enforcement officers not supplant them. And so again, many agencies, I, I'd hazard to say most, if anything, have too few officers for their crime rates and their problems. And by the way, as you saw these massive drop in uh, you know officer retention and hirings over the last few years, what happened in many, especially major cities? Crime shot up, right? And as officers uh, 
either there's kind of an informal internal strike or literally just fear and concern over the current climate, both within their department and in their communities, as they've pulled back or scaled back uh, some of their proactive activities. Or again, like some cities like Berkeley that are requiring them, like banning enforcement of certain uh, traffic infractions, uh, that further exasperates the problem. It, it, it creates, uh, again, an environment where crime can thrive. And in California, you have, um, like, geez, can you commit a crime here anymore unless involving gun ownership? Uh, you know, we keep going softer and softer, shutting prisons, um, reducing felonies to misdemeanors. Well, look at San Francisco right now. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's a shithole. I saw a video of a Target there, and they locked up all of their merchandise. Do you know how they have those little yeah. glass doors? Everything is locked up right. because people are just stealing shit and the cops can't stop them because there's some threshold of like a thousand dollars they have to steal to be arrested or something. But you just are incentivizing crime because there's no enforcement of anything. Right. When, when a criminal does not fear consequences, they act with impunity. And that's kind of where California is headed, either through some terrible district attorneys and their policies to changes in the law. And then we can't just blame, uh, you know, our our le legislators and the governor for some of these changes. The people of California are voting to pass these laws. And so now they got to live with the consequences of it. Now, I'm not going to say that all the laws passed, like in Proposition 47 and 57 and AB 109 with prison realignment, there are certain elements of those that, you know, arguably reflect uh positive changes or needed changes, even some reduction in penalties of certain crimes, maybe, but it goes too far. And that's what this crazy state tends to do is there's no balance. There needs to be common sense balance, but we we swing to extremes. And so many of these changes, this the softness on crime has gone too far. And now our communities are paying the price for it. And, you know, so what officer wants to police in that kind of environment as more and more tools are getting taken away from them? You know, what's the incentive to go out and make an arrest when you literally know that, you know, the jail's main doors will hit the guy on the butt before you make it back to the station and complete your report? That it, 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 the juice isn't worth the squeeze to make the arrest because they're not going to spend any time in jail. Uh, you know, that that's tough psychologically to overcome. And really what you have to keep telling your officers is, look, you can't control those things. Just do your job and do the best you can, do the right thing, uh, and uh, you know, make the arrest or whatever it is that's most appropriate in the situation. You just have to let the rest go. You can't control it. Maybe we'll swing back. Uh, there's been attempts, uh, not successful so far, but maybe we'll swing back a little more towards that balance I spoke of in common sense. Um, you know, do I think that someone that personally possesses, you know, a small amount of heroin should go to prison? No. Uh, if that person's dealing heroin, yes. If they're dealing oxy or some of these other fentanyl or whatever, throw the freaking key away. And, uh, you know, go after the suppliers, obviously, but that, you know, the person that's, that's struggling with their substance abuse disorders, I don't know what the latest thing they call it now, addiction, whatever, uh, you know, in as much as you can try, you know, treatment and other options, you know, and do we really want to fill our prison with those individuals? No. Uh, it does, will there come a point maybe? Yeah, because how are they supporting their habits? They're taking your stuff. 
I mean, that's just a fact. They're take they're committing crimes. You know, these people, for the most part, that are deep into addiction, aren't able to carry on, uh, you know, regular jobs and relationships and all that kind of stuff. So they got to go steal and take from other people. Well, then they should do their time for those crimes, right? Um, but when you take away some of the consequences, like you look at drug court, that system's been gutted because that that created an incentive if you got arrested for relatively minor drug-related crimes, you had an option to participate in the drug pro court program and, uh, you know, essentially have your charges dismissed or not do jail time. Or, I mean, there's there were some benefits to that. And I think the program is still going on to a certain extent, but it's like a, as I understand it, a shadow of what it once was because people are blowing it off. What does it matter? If I don't participate, what are they going to do to me anyways? I'm not going to jail. So where's the incentive to, to partake in programs that could actually hopefully get you on the road to sobriety? I think the common sense aspect is is really what we are missing. Because you shouldn't go to jail for life for having an ounce of weed. You just shouldn't. For petty theft, for these minor infractions, your life shouldn't be ended because you did this. Maybe you made a mistake once. But for these career criminals, the people that are repeat offenders and and just get away with it, and for the people that are committing serious crimes, you shouldn't be out from jail in a month. I mean, you should have. There should be a little pain in there, not necessarily even pain, but some rehabilitation, some momentum to try to get you back on the right path. Maybe like a constructive altering of your direction in life. Something there should be some, some. Something. I mean, really, just something. We should be doing something. And it doesn't feel like California, especially, is doing anything. We're well, just taking yeah. these people off the street for half a second and then putting them right back out there. And they do the same thing. Yeah. I mean, one of the arguments against prison is, and it's the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, is that so many people that go into the prison system, it dishardens them and makes them greater predators and better criminals and better criminals right and it's hard to argue against the fact that that happens right uh, and i'm sure it's not as simple as that but you know what can you do within the system uh truly you know and again there will be many that will be completely resistant to this and you know it's just not going to work but for those that are in that gray area or on the bubble or are open-minded what can you do to actually make them worse criminals, so to speak, you know, that the job training skills and, you know, addressing their mental illness or their substance abuse issues or the trauma in their life and, you know, whatever's going on that's kind of led them into the life of crime. Can you rehabilitate that? Can you make them better citizens when they come out and have a second shot at life? Because a lot of us, many, most of us, you know, like to believe in second chances when they're deserved. But people are getting second, third, fourth, fifth, twelfth chances that don't deserve them at all. They just abuse the system. And those are the ones that we should have the issue with. And, and there should be provisions in the law that allow us to address those kind of individuals. Because it's it's difficult to paint one size fits all, right? Because humans are so unique, their circumstances are unique. So is there a way to have enough flexibility in the system, um, you know, where we can address both kinds of people and those in the middle, but going completely soft, completely closing uh, prisons, allowing people that common sense and decency dictates should be behind bars because every second they're not, they're victimizing people and acting like predators. We have to have a way to deal with those kind of, of individuals and protect 
you know, the greater society from them. And I think California is failing at that epically. And, you know, we're facing the consequences today. And people still want to turn a blind eye to those consequences. And we'll say, no, everything's going fine. We're, we're doing okay. Yeah, it's a little shaky in some of the big cities, but just, you know, don't leave stuff in your car and try not to go out and try not to get jumped. And uh, just Yeah. I question the data that's sometimes quoted in this because I believe that true objective empirical evidence, you know, exists if you look at um, these topics that we're talking about and recidivism and and other elements of, um, you know, the people that commit these crimes and the systems, the criminal justice system, you know, certainly would indicate that we're taking a wrong turn and at least some of the turns of the changes that are made here and that the, the evidence doesn't support going the direction that we have uh, in terms of being softer on crime. And again, I, I'm not making this as a blanket statement. I think that, the, that there is the argument that some of these changes are the right thing to do right? And I don't have a list of them to share here today, but there is no question that, that many of the changes are, are not implemented the right way. Even if they're for the right reasons in some people's minds, the evidence doesn't back it. Uh, the systems uh, resources aren't in place um, to, to have these changes um, it, you know, end in the results that were expected or anticipated. And so, you know, Man, that, again, that just makes it tough to be a police officer or a district attorney or a probation officer in this state or a private citizen that's, again, at the receiving end of these criminal predators. Do you think that some of the extreme that we find ourselves in now stems from a backlash against policing in general and almost an overreach in certain circumstances of law enforcement's enactment of the law? Absolutely. Again, we have this tendency to swing to extremes and overreact to things instead of finding balance. Okay, what's the truth? Let's take an objective look at this, not an emotional look at what the problem is. Uh, you know, what are the, the true causal factors? Uh, you know, and what needs to be done, if anything, to kind of change the situation, improve the situation? So there are certain changes in policing uh, as a result of the last few years that are absolutely positive. You know, we're heading in the right direction. The use of more body-worn cameras, uh, you know, is just one example. Maybe a few tweaks to certain agencies' use of horse policies or increased training, uh, a few changes to the law. I mean, California having a, a um, decertification process for police officers. We're one of the only states that didn't have that. Now, do, do we maybe swing a little to the extreme again or not provide the resources necessarily necessary to, to enact this change um, as fairly and effectively as it should be, that argument could be made. But but again, the ability to decertify police officers that are deserving, that don't deserve to wear the badge, so they can't just go to another agency and get a job, well, that's a right thing to do as long as it's implemented the right way. And that's where the rub is. There were iterations of that law that were just absolutely terrible. And so organizations like the California Police Chiefs Association and the uh, Poor Act, Police Officers Research um, Association of California and others, you know, lobbied against the bills as they are written and tried to introduce some more common sense with mixed results on that. But again, not all the changes are bad. You know, others are ludicrous and dangerous and make our communities less safe and have driven good people out of policing. When you hear about those stories of cops 
planting evidence or of abusing their power or doing these things that they might only get away with because they wear the badge. What do you think? Because it, for better or worse, it's a cop doing those things. And so the backlash is against not just that cop. It is against cops in general. You guys are thrown into this group of, well, all cops are bad because they do this shit and they pull these things and innocent people go to jail. And we, this is why cops are bad. And this is why we need to abolish the force. So as I tell the new officers in training, I mean, there are absolutely are major consequences for misconduct and ethics violations, not only uh, for yourself and your family, so loss of freedom, loss of job, reputation, uh, financial penalties, you know, the list goes on and on, but then also for your agency, which means your fellow officers and, and professional staff members that you work with, again, because they get painted with that same brush, uh, and policing as a profession, as a whole. And, you know, in today's society, again, it's so open and uh, information is transmitted instantly, you know, because we're such a connected world now, uh, worldwide, not just nationwide videos and stories and opinions and all that kind of thing. Uh, never has one actions person's uh, one person's actions had the level of immediate impact to the degree that you see today, like 10, 15 years ago, you know, it wouldn't have made it into everyone's pocket or purse where their their smartphone is. Uh, now, you know, millions of people, hundreds of millions of people can read about uh, whatever version of it is that's out there and opinions that, that you did as an individual. So your individual actions absolutely impact not only your department and fellow members here locally, but the policing as a whole across the country and even the world. And there's significant ramifications for that. Again, we're not in Minnesota. That's over 2,000 miles away. We have nothing to do with the Minneapolis Police Department. Uh, none of those officers have ever worked for us out here on the West Coast. But, you know, when Chauvin did what he did and those other officers uh, to George Floyd, uh, it had a huge impact coast to coast. We had major protests, you know, right here in Eureka. We had officers with with bottles and rocks shot at us and objects thrown and signs, you know, kill the pigs and, you know, cars vandalized and spray painted and the department attacked and vandalized. All this going on. Now, that wasn't like the, let's say the first night, there was around 700 to 1,000 protesters. Great majority of them, they weren't they didn't have violence in their hearts. They may have been angry. Uh, or mixed feelings or whatever, and they felt that they needed to, to march for social justice, and that's their right, and we're here to defend their right to do that. But there were um, anarchists mixed in amongst them. I know this personally. I was there. I saw them. I even talked to some of them. You know, whether it was 20 or so uh, that were mixed in the crowd, and they came to do violence. They came hoping to instigate, um, you know, a riot and acts of violence between the police and the protesters and vice versa. And they were trying to egg that on and they were using the crowd, you know, to hide in, to do the things, the vandalisms and the assaults on officers and things like that. But again, going back to what you're saying, the actions of those few officers over 2,000 miles away had an immediate and profound impact on our community here in little old Humboldt County. And of course, across the country. And how do you handle that? Because, well, I mean, what happened with George Floyd was was terrible. I don't think anybody would argue that. And yet, it devolves 
relations between the police and the public to such a low because of that, because of that one act, that one moment in time. It set policing back in terms of uh, our relationship with many communities and reinforced fears uh, and concerns that um, many people had in certainly certain communities and communities of color, for instance, across the, the nation, because uh, you know, George Floyd was black and well, the officers were a couple of different races, but Chauvin was white. And, you know, so there was, I don't think it was ever proven that there was any racist act. I don't think he was convicted of a race crime, but it certainly felt that way. The people is another example of, you know, white cops terrorizing and victimizing, you know, a person of color and, you know, right, wrong, true, untrue, that's how many, many people felt. And we saw that with our own protests here, uh, you know, because it became about race. Um, you know, I had a number of conversations with people, uh, including uh, individuals from Black Humboldt and others that were there, and I listened to them and their concerns. And, you know, uh, perception or truth in this particular case, I mean, perception can carry just as much weight as the truth for some people. And so, you know, it, has there been institutional racism in policing? Yes. There are, and there are certain agencies, certain areas of the country where it particularly persists to this day, um, much more so than any of us would want to believe. And there can be individuals or pockets anywhere in any agency, right? And that's why it's incumbent upon us to, one, when we're doing backgrounds and hiring people, really dig deep to make sure you're not hiring somebody with those biases, but two, to hold our people accountable and have zero tolerance for anything like that, whether it's misogynist or racist or whatever. Uh, and the policies today and, and uh, you know, many agencies across this country reflect that, but culture can eat policy for lunch. And so you've also got to have, uh, you know, you've got to work hard to, to change culture as needed in your agencies and organizations to kind of, again, root out um, some of those those things. I, I Again, a lot of people like to say, and I've even said it before, well, this person was a bad apple. And what, what I really mean is, hey, look, there might be 100 cops in this agency and one did something really bad. That doesn't mean there's 99 other bad cops. But there's been enough bad apples, and we've seen batches of bad apples in certain agencies as well. We shouldn't sugarcoat that there are still some systemic Systemic and pervasive issues in the overall institution of policing that need to be fixed. I, again, still stand here and firmly believe that the truly the vast majority of people that serve in law enforcement across this country are honorable and in it for the right reasons and will do the right thing. But that doesn't mean we should stick our head in the sand and ignore that there are still real issues and problems that we can need to continue to address and improve. And that includes what can we do to improve our relationships with these other marginalized communities? you know, that maybe fear the police. Now, it's a two-way street. We can reach out all we want, and I also experienced this firsthand. If it's not reciprocated, it makes it hard, right? I mean, they got to be willing, people got to be willing to come to the table too and at least start that dialogue and try to to build increased understanding and trust. And, and I firmly believe that's through relationships and relationships outside of policing, not just your traditional, you know, I mean, like, can we do a community event where I'm, I'm not, Chief Watson, I'm Steve, and you're, you know, whatever your name is, and we break bread together and and socialize and other things, and um, again, gain that understanding. I think that that's important. Agencies need to do a better job of promoting the positive things that they do, right? Because you know that certain individuals and groups are going to always jump on 
anything that's perceived as negative or as negative that's out there, every mistake that you make. So we have to do a better job promoting the good things that we do every day as well. And hopefully have community champions that believe in us that will promote for us at the same time. So again, there's that balance out there. And when a mistake is made or wrong is done, we need to step up to the plate and we need to own it and hold ourselves and our agencies accountable to be as transparent as the law will allow. And we can responsibly be and prove that, that you know, we're an accountable, transparent agency, that we're going to do the right thing, that we can police ourselves and um, that we're invested in that. And uh, that will be harder on us than anyone else. At the same time, we have to be understanding and fair to the men and women that go out there and put it on the line every day because they're asked to make impossible situ decisions, life-changing um, decisions uh, in a split second under situations that are tense, uncertain, and rapidly evolving all the time. And uh, you can't always get it right. You're going to make mistakes. And so we have to be fair about that as well and realize the environment we're asking them to operate in. But again, when there's misconduct, when there's a clear example of, of you know, criminal excessive force, uh, there's an ethical violation, then we need to take prompt and, and uh, decisive action to hold those people accountable. How do you balance officers having each other's backs versus them going a little bit too far and almost covering up when one slips up? Yeah. Because you need them to trust each other. You need yeah. them to be on the same side in some sense, you know? But if one makes a mistake, you also need them to be able to point that out and hold that person accountable. I mean, the bottom line and what I teach in the ethics class is, is you know, when there's a, a clear violation, it's black and white. You don't have a choice. You have a duty to intervene. This is what you have to do. You're always going to report it to a supervisor. And, you know, you're going to take steps to immediately intervene depending on the situation. You have to just stop if a violation is continuing, whether it's excessive force or something else you can't allow it to continue and report it later you need to stop it and then uh you know report it asap to a supervisor and have it go from there but on your point this isn't costco we're not working at disneyland where two co-workers you know the stakes are very high and so the person that you you know are quote-unquote tattling on or whatever that may feel that you're betraying a, a, a trust is someone that you work shoulder to sh shoulder with on a daily basis where your lives are often in danger, where you count on each other, right? And that creates a unique dynamic and a bond and a level of trust that, yes, creates some complications when it comes to what's that line where I'm going to intervene or report something you know, they shouldn't have done. You know, and not every situation is black and white, like, you know, academy scenarios, you know, where it's easy, like this is you clear what you have to do. Sometimes these things seem in the gray area, and those can be very tough. But, uh, you know, there's no room for gray and ethics, too. And the bottom line is, is officers have to be trained and supported to do the right thing and ideally intervene before things escalate to where a crime's committed or there's a significant policy violation or ethical violation. You know, if you see one of your partners is starting to lose his temper or her temper uh, and might be about to say something or do something that goes too far, step in, hey, I got this. You know, you go take care of this, I'll take care of this, and you can have a conversation with them later. That's how you have their back, not by sitting there and watching them, uh, you know, commit a crime, essentially do something wrong and now they're comfortable doing this in front of you, and um, 
if that wasn't just a bad day and they're inclined to, to act this way, maybe it continues and it escalates and it's more and more. And now you've created an environment where to them it's okay to act this way in front of you. Now, people need to know that, you know, Officer Watson, I'm not going to speak to people this way. I'm not going to act this way. I'm not going to do this or that, uh, you know, from in front of him because he's not going to stand for it. He's going to step in every time. And they just know because you, when someone puts you in that position, if I'm out there on a call for service and my partner does something unethical, I mean, let's, let's say as simple as, you know, you're on a burglary call at a, a closed business and, you know, they see, a, you know, a pack of gum, you know, on the counter and like, you know, like I, my mouth's a bit dry and like, use, I'll just take a cup of gum. It's only 50 cents. Like, well, that's a theft. I mean, that's a black and white. There's no put it back and you know if they took it you've got to tell you just put it in this position um you can tell them first but i've got to talk to our sergeant and say what i saw you know and how dare you put me in a position uh, like this you know because that's not respect if, if an officer will act in a way whether it's excessive force or theft or you know whatever that it is in front of their partner what does it say about how they feel about their partner right the way i look at it is is they disrespect you they think that you'd be okay with something like that. And they're putting you in a position to cost you your job and your career. And so that's on the offending officer all day long. I have to ask, because this is almost a perfect segue. When the texting stuff amongst EPD came out, what was your initial reaction? I mean, were you frustrated with your officers? Because obviously there would be some blowback on the whole department for this dumb mistake, this dumb thing that they did? I was disappointed and uh, frustrated and wounded and angry beyond belief on this. We had worked so hard, uh, you know, starting with my predecessor and then over my four plus years on rebuilding community trust, continuing some positive changes um, and, and bringing new changes to the department. I was in the middle of completing a report to the community on 21st century policing and the six pillars in there, um, you know, that include things like, you know, accountability and trust to the community. And we had developed a number of programs to be very present in the community. Of course, COVID screwed everything up for a year. But up until then, we'd been very, very involved and becoming more involved. Uh, we'd increased transparency and accountability. I had been holding people accountable and requiring my supervisors and, and captains to hold people accountable that crossed the line while at the same time being fair to our officers. Uh, you know, just a lot of work and a team effort to move the department, uh, to continue moving it in a positive direction, to weed out some of the, the old ways of doing things and thinking that were detrimental to policing into the community and uh, really changed the culture there. And it felt that we were so close and still do. I mean, really, but to have this happen was incredibly frustrating because it, it erased instantaneously, not in everybody's mind. I mean, there's people that support us regardless and have a different perspective, but this had worldwide reach and certainly coast to coast, millions and millions of views. Washington Post, LA Times, Sack B, the list goes on and on, airing like just an ugly ugliness out there that seemingly undermined all the work that had been done by so many for years. And it made our jobs harder, made our jobs less safe for the officers. Um, it frankly, um, 
it impacted our budget, I believe, and salary increases for the officers um, it came at a bad time. And at least that's my belief, and I have information that supports that. I mean, and that's a lesser aspect of this. Again, it just comes back to the, the effect on morale and the hard work in the community and really became an all-consuming thing for the better part of a year. Uh, now I think the department's passed it, you know, and um, some decisions were made on how to uh, to hold the involved people accountable. That um, was the right thing to do. I can't go into any of that kind of detail, but the right decisions were made at the end of the day. Uh, but they had impacts on everyone, including those involved officers' families. Um, and so, yeah, it was extremely frustrating and disappointing. Um, but what can you do? You've got to step up. You've got to own it, uh, not minimize it in any way. And I don't feel that we did that. Um, at the end of the day, right before I, tired, I retired, I took the most decisive actions that I could take uh, and left, laid the groundwork for the, the final steps to be taken by the incoming interim chief of police and city manager. And, uh, you know, did my best, uh, you know, to encourage, you know, our staff, uh, you know, to uh, put this in perspective and with the excellent work they're doing, you know, every day and all of that and, and try to use it as an opportunity. Because in every crisis, there's an opportunity. You can fold and let the crisis consume you and destroy you, or you can look at it as, oh, this sucks, but there's in the middle of this chaos, this crisis, there's an opportunity for positive change. And so I try to, and our team try to maximize, um, make continuing some, some positive changes and getting us across the finish line in some important areas. So I was frustrated that the person that disclosed this uh, didn't feel comfortable coming directly to me instead of a, a news outlet. And there are some very specific reasons that I know for that that I can't speak to today. Uh, no surprises, like, I, you know, it was pretty easy to figure out with that, some interpersonal dynamics and some other things going on. But at the end of the day, even though that's not the way I, I would have chosen to have this happen, um, you know, I guess you could say some good out of it is there were some changes and some personnel changes that took place that made our department better. Do you think that all of the blowback was justified or do you think it got a little over-exaggerated or the attention that was put on it was more than it necessarily was well, I, warranted I, in that situation? Yeah, I absolutely believe that as a whole, the reality is it was unfair to 99% of the officers and the work the department had done overall because that was completely ignored. And the narrative out there was because they got one expert that knows nothing about the department in a snapshot of this to say, yes, it's, it's likely indicative of larger cultural issues within the department. Bullshit. Uh, and I get why you're saying that. And again, there was, I called it the last gasp or the last bastion of a, an old way uh, that was there that um, through this crisis, uh, you know, we were able to move on from, so to speak. And it was, I think that was necessary since it still existed and had not changed like I had hoped. Um, that that just makes the department better, obviously, because they did what they did. And, you know, that causes you to reflect like everyone else did that read all this. Okay, what do these underlying attitudes and things mean? And there's a fine line, you know, going back real quick, they painted it with a broad brush like there was all these people involved in this. It really came down to, to two core people and one other person on something that came out that was kind of unrelated. That's all I can say. It wasn't like this large group of people in the department in this. 
But, you know, the question that gets thrown out a lot is what's the line between banter, you know, and like stress relief and, and the kind of banter never intended to see the light of day or to get to the people that are being talked about and that the officers would never act upon the things they were saying. And there may be a degree of truth because cops have cop humor and like every workplace does. Things are said that, you know, you wouldn't want aired in national newspapers because you're just, I don't know. Uh, but at the same time, there's enough things said, misogynist and, and uh, other, that um, you know raises the question is, what is the genuine underlying attitudes held by a couple of people here? And what does that mean when it translates to their work out there? And you know, one way to look at this is the peace officers are given a gun and a badge and tools and, and embodied with great power to literally take away someone's freedom. They can act on, uh, unethically or illegally, but they can act on threats like these or things, you know? And so that gives their words far greater power than it does for your average person because of the power and authority that they're given in their tools. And so that means uh, we have to be so much more careful about what we say and what we do because you could say, make the same exact joke, but a peace officer on duty makes that joke, it's going to carry a degree of weight that those same words by anyone else will not. And we know that, or we should know that. They knew that. And, um, you know, so deep disappointment, um, some discouragement, uh, obviously. Uh, I did see also opportunity in the crisis, um, but it was not not a fun time. You know, it was it was... It was a really tough time to see the department go through that and uh, you know, see the impact that it had on the men and women, the many fine men and women that, that work there. And, and many of them, for the record, you know, they may have various opinions on degree of what happened and what was said. And, and um, you know, the internal investigation by law was kept completely confidential. So you know, the vast majority of people don't get to see the full investigative report. They don't get to, they basically they get only what they read in the newspapers, right? Which is just a partial picture. They don't get to see all the backstory, all the details, the other things that came out, all that kind of stuff. One encouraging thing is, uh, in the report I read, is it didn't come back showing a pervasive problem, cultural problem in the department involving a whole bunch of other people, a lot of different things. It really, this incident, this particular investigation at its core came down to, small number of individuals and more limited scope versus like, again, a, a huge widespread problem that went into multiple investigations. There was one other investigation as an outcome that, again, I can't go into, but, um, uh, you know, they don't get to see the whole story, but uh, so many people in the department were also discouraged and upset and angry at those that were involved that, you know, um, damage their reputation, their reputation of the department in a relationship with some in the community. I still think most people locally, you know, kind of um, kept the event in um, perspective and there's still a high level of support for the department uh, during that time, even in the middle of this, you know, and we would, I know that from people that would come up and talk to us or the cards and the goodies, they continue to drop off at the department and encouraging things that they would said. But nationally, um, you know, you have people in cities across the U.S. reading this. And, oh, there you go. Of course, that just like we thought, this, the, all, all cops are this, all cops are that. 
you know, that's another example of a department that's, you know, broken. Well, no, it, it wasn't. It was discouraging. Um, but um, it, it didn't represent the whole department and the great majority of the men and women that, that worked there that didn't engage in that kind of behavior. Well, it's a nuanced situation, right? I mean, at least for me personally, I can say that, you know, more so in my younger days, but I have said some wild things just to get a laugh out of one of my friends. Things that I did mean or just crazy things just to try to get somebody to laugh. And it's not, there's no bad intent behind it. There's no willful harm that I'm trying to instill in somebody else. It's just, you're saying some crazy stuff to get a buddy to laugh. And so part of me wants to try to extend that to the officers and what was said in that. And one of the things that you always hear about law enforcement and really the military is they kind of have a fucked up sense of humor, pardon my French, but, or a dark sense of humor. And so I kind of want to extend that grace in that sense to them. But then you do have the backside of these people, for better or worse, are held to a higher standard than the average citizen. So them saying this, it carries more weight than just me sitting on a podcast saying this or Joe Blow saying those same things. And, and, you know, and that's an understandable perspective because, you know, I'm sure many of their friends and, you know, acquaintance feel the same way. And there's some arguments to be made, again, going back towards the banter and blowing off. And, you know, you know, is there evidence that, that any of those involved were actually going to, you know, shoot somebody in the head or do, you know, commit some kind of act or follow through what was implied? I think it's fair to say no, um, but th that really wasn't this, what that was about. You know, again, we're just held to that higher standard. And as chief, it's my job to set policy in the standards in an agency. And there is not a single person that worked for the Eureka Police Department that couldn't say that my expectations were clear. I, I met with every single person in the department when I first became chief and have interacted many times since and have consistently um, followed through with what the standards are of how we're going to treat people there. And the work that we're doing to try to, well, the target of many of these comments are the homeless community. Hey, I get it. I have my frustrations. You're dealing with the same people over and over again in some really crappy situations, literally in some cases. Uh, it's very difficult population, uh, you know, to deal with. But that's our job, to re remain above that, to set the example, to stay professional. In my mind, it comes with a uniform and badge. We have to be better than that. Um, this involved a supervisor. Well, we hold our supervisors to a higher standard. And when a supervisor is speaking this way, and this is all public, I'm not sharing any intimate details. It's all in the SAC B. Uh, they know the names and all that. I won't say them here. But when you have a supervisor involved that is facilitating and condoning and encouraging this, you know, and it's going out to a larger group of you know, officers from various degrees of experience from new ones, you know, what kind of example is that setting? What impact is that having? And so there's got to be some accountability because at the end of the day, it's not an acceptable way to think or an attitude uh, to portray or the way to speak. And I think that's what the people that have big concerns about the texting scandal is. They're looking at the words and going and the pervasiveness of the words and how many things were said and how over top many of them are. And they're, you know, conflating that to uh, this reflects the individual attitudes of those involved, not just being funny and saying something inappropriate, which we've all done, but to what degree does this reflect how they really think? And then the question they raise is, if they think that way, they feel that way, as evidenced by these terrible things they're saying, then how are they acting? What are they doing, you know, in the dark when no one else is around? 
And, you know, what does that mean for how fairly and objectively and compassionately the police, especially when they interact with one of the groups that they were making fun of? Well, that's a legitimate question to ask. And um, you know, I obviously know everyone involved. I know the positive traits that they have and that they show every day, the good things that they've done, the brave things that they've done, the the way that they've served their community in many other ways with honor and integrity and courage and all of that. Um, but then I also know some more details on the flip side and some things from the investigations. And so at the end of the day, um, you know, it happened either on private phones, work phones, doesn't matter, uh, by law or by policy, uh, things were set on duty related to work matters that were absolutely unacceptable and caused tremendous harm to the department, to its members, and even to the profession as a whole. And so that's where you have to have accountability. It's a lot of stress. I know I've said that a few times now, but you not only have to worry about the stress that's directly applicable to you doing your job and the dangers that come with that, but you are also walking on a tightrope with public perspective and public interpretation of how you do your job and how policing should be handled and their view of officers. I mean, when you put on that badge, you are almost representing this entire organization and every slip up, every bad moment is just broadcast, especially more so now because there's almost an incentive to amplify those because they're going to get clicks and they're going to get views and people for better or worse want to see that to some extent, but you are now, you're almost a spokesperson for this nationwide corporation. Yeah, and, and let's be real, cause you're, you're literally hitting the heart of the matter here, even going back to your question about, okay, well, really, I'm paraphrasing, but really how bad was it really what was said? And again, I just want to put out, I can't say anything, but there were other things that came to light for those involved that add more to the story than just what's out in the public in the paper that people probably won't get to know because of the current uh, transparency laws in California. And, uh, you know, I think that if people had a more complete picture, it may sway some people to think and understand more why the actions that were taken were taken. But at the uh, end of the day, policing has changed. It's constantly evolving, often at a rapid pace. And those practitioners of policing have to be flexible and malleable and willing and able to change with it. And I don't mean like change in terms of compromising certain values uh, type of thing, but there, I mean, from emerging technology to the expectations of society, which are ever changing uh, to the fact that there's, you know, not only body cameras, but everyone's got a smartphone with a camera. Now you're constantly under surveillance. Again, information and opinions are transmitted instantly across the country. So the impacts of what you do and say are vastly more far-reaching and powerful than they ever were in the history of policing. And, you know, if you some kind of misconduct act came out, let's say in 1965 or the 70s or even 80s here, and an officer did some terrible thing, yeah, it'll blow up in the time standard and the Eureka Reporter if it was around then and some of the other local things. But it's it was likely to stay either local or regional and never go beyond that. And now anything that's said or done, again, it, it is nationwide. And maybe the whole major news outlets don't pick it all up, but it can gain traction, you know, in a far wider audience with a far wider impact than ever before. And so every officer knows or should know, and they're told that they police in a fishbowl, so to speak, and that your actions on and off duty, 
matter that you're held to a higher standard that just comes with the badge. And if you're not willing to live that way and act that way, don't put the freaking badge on. And it can be unfair at times. Officers absolutely are unfairly judged and held to impossible standards because uh, they're just human beings too, 100%. And they deserve some mercy and some grace for that. But there are lines you don't cross. And that's why it's so important to, to remember that. And so those involved in saying those things and the way they did, they knew that. They should have known better. And they should have realized if the words ever came out, the negative impacts it would have on our relationship with our community and the community's trust in them. And, you know, nonetheless, it took place and the worst case scenario happened and it caused a tremendous amount of harm. And so the bottom line is, as well, you have, you have to step up and own it because now you're going to be held accountable. Is that one of the challenges in working with the kids out at CR and this new generation of cops is just instilling in them the real gravity of what they're signing up to do and trying to prepare them for that? It's a combination because, again, there's such a, there's so many fewer people signing up to be police officers today for a number of reasons, but there's no question, you know, the impacts of uh, cases like the George Floyd's murder and others and the negative national narrative about policing and the protests and the calls to defund the police and all of that are having an impact on people's um, desire to become a police officer. They're thinking, why am I going to put myself and my family through that, um, you know, versus maybe earlier generations uh, this feeling was more and more people looked at officers with respect. Now there's some question marks, um, at least according to the news that's constantly out there, right? Um, so yes, I need to prepare them. We need to prepare them uh, to be leaders, to act in an ethical way, to understand the environment they're operating in. It's no different than if, if we are gearing up to go to war in Afghanistan. Well, those soldiers and Marines and sailors and airmen are going to be trained about what environment to expect that they're going to be operating in, what dangers they're going to face, what the rules of engagement are. Uh, that, you know, they're going to be trained and equipped for that and to prepare them to be successful in that environment. Well, I don't want to equate policing with a war zone because that's the last thing that we want to do. But we have an environment we're operating in. And so we need to train and equip our officers to understand that environment, to be successful in it. And again, societies expectations are changing. They're very high for police officers today. And uh, there's some negative narratives, again, that we have to overcome. And so they need to be equipped and prepared for that. But the flip side of that is encouraging them and thanking them that they heard the call and they stepped forward at a time that their community and their nation needs them more than ever. And they're willing to, to take that burden on, to wear that badge with pride and all that it entails from the toxicity that I talked about to um, the amazing opportunities to make a difference and live a life of purpose and meaning and give back. And those moments like the, the baby that was saved and so many others where, you know, this is why I signed up, right? And so encouraging them to, to stay the course through the good times and bad, the tough academy training, field training and all of that and not give up because it'd be, we don't want to lose them. Because you know, you're painting this dismal story. Yeah, that's part of the story. It's not the whole story. Much of the story is yet to be written. And now they're the new generation coming forward that can write that story for future generations of police officers and law enforcement officers across uh, the country. 
So they're writing the narrative and how they act, um, the attitudes that they portray, and the courage they've shown and the sense of, of service and humility uh, to give back to their community by being a law enforcement officer. So I want to encourage that, and we need to encourage that in them also. Uh, the last two academies graduated with around 12 cadets, 12. Uh, one of them started out with 17 and lost a few along the way. Um, both of them have had at least one just up and quit for whatever reason, realizing the job wasn't for them, family reasons or whatever. But those are very, very small academies when historically, as I understood it, at College of the Redwoods, for instance, you were turning people away. There were too many people applying. You couldn't fit them all in the academy. So you'd have 30 or 40 cadets or whatever the number was with others waiting to get in. Well, now it's like you're getting a dozen, less than 20, uh, and, and most of those are sponsored positions. Like they used to be highly coveted. We'll pay you. We'll pay for your, all your academy. We'll pay you a salary while you're here. And then when you come out, you'll be a new deputy sheriff or a police officer or whatever that it is in uh, transition you into that pay scale. But it's a paid ride, you know, versus I've known – I knew one guy that ran his own construction business, and he was an older gentleman, uh, like in his mid-40s. He continued to support his family with his construction business and put himself through the academy in Butte County. Uh, he wasn't sponsored, but he wanted to be a police officer so bad that that's what he did. I mean, that is tough. The academy's you know a big pill to swallow. So I want to encourage people. Yeah, there's some negativity out there. Not going to lie, not going to sugarcoat it. But nothing has changed about the job in terms of its importance and significance uh, to your community, to the honor and nobility of policing, to the fact that there are countless millions of Americans that still need you respect you, uh, trust you, support you, and uh, you'll have a chance to live a life of meaning and purpose every single day. I saw a lot of crap in nearly 25 years and good days, bad days. A lot of the, the, the stuff that frustrated me the most wasn't even external, it was internal, which is pretty common. But at the end of the day, uh, there wasn't a morning that I woke up that I wasn't proud about what I did. And if someone asked me, I was out and about, hey, what do you do for a living? I said, well, I'm a police officer. I felt a feeling of pride in my heart. It like, you know, I, yeah, I am a law enforcement officer and I'm an honorable one. And, uh, you know, I'm serving my, my, my community with everything that I have. Um, I know that I can't change the whole world, but I've made a difference where I can. Um, the journey's been worth it. And, uh, you know, it's a calling, not just a job or profession. And so for those that are out there that might be listening, you know, and you feel that tug, I encourage you, if you have what it takes or you think you do, apply and come, you know, join the vast family that is law enforcement. And you see things that you want to change will be part of that positive change. This is an opportunity for the next generation to step up and advance policing into the 21st century. And it's an important role to fill. I think that's it's important to remember that because we all enjoy the benefits of having cops around, but not a lot of people want to be in that position and dealing with what they deal with. And yeah, there are definitely bad apples and painful situations and things that have happened, but I think it's safe to say that most cops are good, that most cops stand for the things that we would want them to stand for and are out there fighting the good fight, so to speak. And yeah. it's just, you're going to have bad people in anything. I mean, there are bad people in the world. There are bad teachers. There are bad college professors. There are bad presidents. There are bad people because people are variable. And so you're going to get some bad cops. And I think the goal is just when they appear, you need to cast them out. And 
just try to move forward. Right. I mean, like you said, cops are humans too, so it means they're flawed like everybody else. But we are held to a higher standard, and we have to know that going in, hold ourselves and each other to that standard. At the same time, I think, uh, again, people need to show some grace, you know, for the the environment that we're asking our officers to live in. And I don't mean forgive unacceptable behavior, you know, we make mistakes. And so this goes for law enforcement leaders, members of the public, and just in terms of finding that balance where you do appropriately hold people accountable and you hold these high standards, but at the same time, you're understanding the human beneath the badge and, you know, is this person redeemable? Uh, is this person, you know, just make an honest mistake, but we can learn from this, grow from this. Yeah, there may be some cost involved, but, um, you know, you're going to you're gonna be better from this versus those situations where there's someone that truly is just bad. Whether they started out that way or not, uh, it's time for them to leave the profession. So don't drag us all down. Because again, the stakes are so high and, and the degree of power and authority that an officer is given is just, it changes this compared to virtually any other profession. And so that has to be kept in mind, you know, as well, because it's a two-way relationship between the community and uh, the police. And, um, you know, we need to live up to the expectations. The society needs to have reasonable expectations. Well, Steve, I really appreciate you coming on, man. I enjoy this conversation a lot. Well, thanks for having me, Nick. This has been been uh, great to go back through and think about the profession as a whole, the changes over the last few years and, and where we're heading as we see it. I appreciated the, the conversation. Yeah, me too. Uh, do you want to plug anything where people can find you or where they could get involved in any stuff? Huh. You don't have to. Some people <laughs> supply a little additional things, but... Uh, you know, I, right off the top of my head, I can't think of uh, anything. Um, yeah, I don't endorse any products or <laughs> like that. Pushing a brand. Follow yeah. me on TikTok. Right. Yeah, no, I You know, I'm, I am looking at what Chapter 2.0 of my life is going to look like now that I've had a, about a year and a half, uh, you know, retired. Again, I'm doing a few things, finished my graduate degree and started teaching at the academy and... Um, few other things, but I haven't really embarked on a, on a new path. And I'm not sure what that's going to look like yet. I just know that um, I may be retired from my old job, but I'm still committed to advancing policing and looking for opportunities where I can continue to serve, just maybe in a different way. And obviously, I'm, I hope that my passion about policing and the men and women who are brave to go out there every day and serve their communities, uh, that passion is unabated. It burns bright still. And you know, I want to see uh, the profession of policing continue to move forward and to not only meet but overcome the challenges that we're going to face to grow stronger and better and increase trust, you know, and, and just call on our communities across the country uh, to remember, like we talked about earlier, uh, you need your police officers and they're deserving of respect and trust, uh, but you also have every right to hold us accountable uh, for what we do. And, uh, you know, we need to work together. This policing is a, a shared responsibility. Well, it definitely comes across. It's easy to see that you are passionate about this, that you still have a lot of love for law enforcement in general, and that you're just kind of trying to pull the ship in a good direction. Hey, here's where we are. Here's where we can be. And I believe in that future. I think that's good. I think that's admirable. All right. Well, thanks for having me on, Nick. Yeah. Thanks, Steve. All right. All right.